So why don't you tell me about your failure as a friend? Whoa. Whoa, you're coming at me hot today. I see somebody's <laughs> a little spicy. Somebody is a little spicy today. That's fair. I have been feeling very bad this morning. I privately admitted to you before we started that uh, I was contacted by a dear friend this morning with a link to... Sorry, was that a private thing you told me? I wasn't... Su- I'm no, sorry. No, I'm just ribbing you. And now that, you know, now that you're coming at me, I got to give some back, uh, of course. <laughs> As a Bitcoiner, it hurts It's it, a little bit when somebody links you a project that is a scam. And, you know, it's, I realized that for the non-maxis, it's so easy to get sucked into, like, the proposed advantages of a project. And I'm talking about something, I think it's called Satio or Satio, S-A-I-T-O, and they pitch themselves as, quote, the future of open source. And they are saving open source from the problems that were left unsolved by Bitcoin. And they provide a very helpful graphical chart that shows you all the things that Seisho does that Bitcoin or Ethereum doesn't do. And they talk about monetizing the entire stack for free software. And it's, it's such an appealing pitch. And, it, you know, it's a nice, well-written medium post. It's it's got, you know, a, an entry on coin market cap. It, it's, it's like an official project and they're going to solve the future of open source. It lends itself so easily to this idea that, yeah, there's Bitcoin, but maybe there's something even better than Bitcoin. Because I think when you don't fundamentally understand what makes Bitcoin hard money and what makes it so different than everything else, when you think about there's no founder, right? There's, he's gone now. There's, there's no one group. There's not a foundation that like, pre-mined coins, right? Like all these elements that make Bitcoin a safe long-term store of value that just simply don't exist in these other projects. But if you're not thinking about those fundamentals, they really sell themselves as quite the solution. I think part of it is that we probably think way too much about Bitcoin. And so the moment we see a scam like this, we jump all over the flaws. And let's just list them briefly. First of all, the idea of a money that specifically targets one activity like open source, say, is patently ridiculous. And so they'll have to pretend that they're not money. Monetizing open source doesn't make sense if it's not money. And it doesn't make sense to just have a money for open source because there would be no network effect. Open source is important, but it's not important enough to have its own money. You'd then need to take your open source dollars and trade them to Bitcoin or US dollars so that you can spend them. So the idea of solving one problem with a token, that's very 2017 ICO. So it's a bit of a throwback. Then they're marketing the affinity scam with Bitcoin by seeming to praise Bitcoin, but then actually negging Bitcoin because it lacks some feature that they pretend to have. And it looks professional. I think what most people don't realize is that Bitcoin never looked particularly professional. It was always a sort of a hot mess because there is no marketing department. And so scams tend to look much more polished and legitimate in many respects because they do have a marketing department. That's very ironic. That's a great point. One of the things that they, when they're comparing Bitcoin to their uh, savior coin, some of the things they claim Bitcoin can't do is decentralization. They say they have it. Bitcoin doesn't have it. Peer-to-peer nodes. They say they have it. They say Bitcoin doesn't have it. This is just wild. Like some of this stuff, like peer-to-peer nodes, nothing. Nothing has the network that Bitcoin has. Bitcoin invented peer-to-peer nodes, basically. Obviously, there were software systems with nodes, but the way that Bitcoin creates this anti-fragile, self-healing network that is resistant to DDoS and other network-level attacks, it's 
absolutely, indisputably one of the most powerful and impressive software projects in history. And these guys are just saying, no, it's not. Trust us. Ridiculous. The other thing that this really works out to be is it's a system that layers in fees at a lot of different points that other cryptocurrencies have never even thought of charging fees for. So it's kind of funny. What it's really selling is we are the blockchain with the most fee collection. That's actually what they're pitching. And then because they, have, they collect so many fees, they can subsidize open source infrastructure that projects can run on top of. And of course, projects can also get monetized on this. The network effect required for this would be probably larger than the Linux desktop itself, right? Than the entire presence of the Linux desktop. You'd have to have more adoption than that for this to even become anywhere near self-sustaining. It's ridiculous. Collecting fees at many different places, that's not a good thing. Have you ever been nickeled and dimed where you have a bill from a place and they charge you for every nut and bolt and service fee, this fee, that fee? No one wants that. That's the worst. Having one fee like Bitcoin does per transaction is pretty efficient and it's easy to make decisions and calculate. Having multiple fees is too complicated. And also, we haven't even gotten to the best part, which is when market cap has their distribution of tokens and it all went to insiders. That initial distribution really tells you what's going on. Because frankly, even if Saito, Sato, whatever this thing is, wasn't a total piece of crap scam, the distribution of tokens giving 99% to insiders and only 1% to the public, that lets you know that this is a pump and dump exit scam. Because even if it was a real project, if one person had 99% of the tokens, they would have to dump it. There's no world where they don't dump it. And so that initial distribution kind of determines how the whole project shakes out. And as we've talked about before, you can't create Bitcoin's distribution anymore. That was something that could only happen once because now that Bitcoin exists, if we create Bitcoin 2.0 and it's even better than Bitcoin and would totally be better if people just gave it a shot, it could never form a sustainable network. Even if we didn't pre-mine it and give it to ourselves, which would ruin it immediately, if we started mining fairly and tried to launch Bitcoin 2.0, immediately people would start hoarding it and pumping and dumping it because they've seen that behavior before with Bitcoin, with altcoins, with whatever. And so new projects literally cannot get network effects anymore simply because we know about Bitcoin and we know that these things could be financial assets. It means that people's behavior changes and they don't sort of let the network grow and give it to people and use it and play with it the way that happened with Bitcoin. Everything else is a financial activity, a financial scam after Bitcoin. And so you can't even really have new projects grow up the way that Bitcoin did. You know, they try to do these centralized models and they literally all fail, literally all fail. I think it's a hard thing for people to accept because it's not a technical issue. It's a human behavior issue. So you can't put it on a piece of paper with pros and cons and this may or may not happen. It's a human behavior thing. And just to underscore what dad said there, 1% of this supposed open source savior token went to public sales. Everything else went to insiders. That doesn't sound very open source. No. And the prices we record is $0 and 0.09685 cents. So, and that's up 1.72%. So I don't even really know how you do the math on that. I just have to learn how to better talk about the advantages of Bitcoin and what make it unique. Like what one of the things you just touched on there, like how do I compress that down? Because I can't get everybody to listen to the Bitcoin dad pod. Well, we could clip that maybe. That's a good idea. Somebody should clip that. <laughs> Somebody should. <laughs> that was me giving you a chance to intro the episode there. Totally missed the cue. We're not sitting next to each other, so I don't 
get the cue and normally you have that that cricket bat you keep by your chair and you just whack me with it when I have to move on to the next section. I mean, these days I just have I just I can just like glance at it and you get the message these days. <laughs> I know, I cringe. I just cower. <laughs> Speaking of cowering, <laughs> this is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, July 1st. 2022. I am your Bitcoin dad, and I am here as always. Well, not actually here. It's remote, but I'm here with... Yeah, virtually, with me. Virtually. It's, it's me, Chris. With Hi. Chris. Hi. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome in. On today's episode, we are remote because I happen to be in Eastern Europe for some reason, but we are going to cover some news stories. The general theme will be the Bitcoin bear market. I feel like nothing specific has happened recently, but we're kind of surrounded by this Bitcoin bear market energy. So we'll touch on that. Some good news about Ruben Somsen and his work on space chains. He got a grant to pursue that. So we'll talk about that. We'll touch on the Loomis Gillibrand bill and the feedback it's getting. There might be a top or bottom signal with a Solana Labs mobile phone project. There is a economics thread on Twitter that will touch on energy and some other topics that might be prescient. Then we have some tokenomics news about the Three Arrows Capital debacle, some schadenfreude news about BlockFi, and I will ask Chris how he feels about Ledger's new edition of yield farming. Then we have some privacy news and actually a pretty big Bitcoin education section, which will include a link to an article about oracles and the latest Bitcoin optech. I'm looking forward to this. And do we have boosts? We've had some problem with boosts lately. Oh, I hope so. I hope we do. I know. That has been a little tricky. There's been a lot going on, of course, while you're traveling, too. Before we start with the news, I'm kind of curious to hear what the Bitcoin scene is like where you're at. Have you, I mean, I know you've just been there very focused, but have you got a sense? Are there, are, is there Bitcoin in the air over there? There is. I met with a local Bitcoiner who has serious OG Bitcoiner energy, and we had a lively conversation. This Bitcoiner then showed me to a Bitcoin ATM without KYC and with very competitive fees. Oh. Let me tell you, a Bitcoin ATM that just works and doesn't want your phone number or any of that nonsense, wow, that is how Bitcoin is supposed to work. I mean, it's just magical. It's like you dematerialize dollars into Bitcoin no one has to know about it. It's so nice. It's the best. You know, I've never used a Bitcoin ATM. Yeah, because American Bitcoin ATMs suck. They want your phone number, your driver's license. It's just a mess. Yeah, maybe one day. Maybe one day when I'm traveling, I'll get a chance to use it. Well, that's pretty cool. I'm glad to hear. I mean, it's pretty nice that you got to meet up with a Bitcoiner, too. Well, on to the news. And our first story is about Compass Mining losing both their CEO and CFO. So for... Our listeners who haven't been keeping track, Compass Mining was advertising on many Bitcoin podcasts as a way to conveniently do some Bitcoin mining. And the idea was you would buy a Bitcoin mining unit from Compass, and then they would ship it to a hosting facility and you would mine Bitcoin, but they would deal with everything and just take a fee. And I was skeptical of this model. What did you think about it when you first heard about it, Chris? I thought to myself... I could see this working like I I I have this fantasy where I got into mining, although, boy, am I glad I didn't right now. And I could see selling hosted mining, but I don't think I'd want to go the route where somebody buys a rig and then sends it to me and I ship it out to a facility. 
that's not the direction I would have gone. And that always kind of made me a little skeptical about their setup because it meant that they were always going to be forced to hunt for just bottom basement rent, bottom basement electricity in, in a really aggressive way because where else are they going to make their margin, right? And so that always was a red flag to me. There are so many fundamental problems with hosted mining. First of all, having a third party do mining for you has always been a scam traditionally in crypto. Do you remember the cloud mining scams from like 2016, 2017? I do, indeed. So the idea was like someone was mining on an AWS instance and you were like paying for that AWS instance and then you trust them to give you any coins or something. It was bonkers. No one ever got any payback and most were just straight up scams. Not even Ponzi schemes, just scams. And with Compass, I think that in most instances they did what they said they were going to do. They sold you a mining unit and they shipped it somewhere. But the problem is there's so much risk in this model because you own the unit, not them. And they don't want to own the unit. They want you to own the unit because they don't want the inventory risk. And then they take a fee on top of all of this mining. And so first of all, mining via Compass is never going to be cost competitive with a serious mining operation because Compass didn't even own the facilities. They were shipping these ASICs too. They were just a, a broker. So there are so many middlemen in this hosted mining setup that even if they're all above board and don't abuse your trust, which they can because they have your expensive mining ASIC, there are so many middlemen that it just doesn't seem cost competitive in my view, but maybe it is when Bitcoin's really pumping. But then Compass had a lot of problems. They actually lost $30 million of miners in Russia because of sanctions. And then they had a problem with their hosting provider and that provider basically just took all of the ASICs that belong to Compass customers. And then apparently they just had poor operational management. They were behind on their bills to a hosting facility. And the real kicker for me is they deleted their Discord server where they were supposed to communicate with their community. They just deleted it. And I think that kind of is the maybe not exit scam move, but it, it speaks to something. Like they don't want to talk to you. They don't want to hear it because they know what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And they did it like a week or two before they knew bad news was dropping. So they clearly wanted to just like get the crap out of the Discord room before all the bad news would land. Sort of like how Celsius stopped doing their weekly live AMAs right before the bad news landed. So now what's happened is CEO Whit Gibbs and Chief Financial Officer Jody Fisher have resigned effective immediately. And of course, Compass Mining has tried to say, no, don't worry, we're get, we got people internally. We're going to move them up to the CEO role and the CFO role. So we're, we're going to be fine. But after, like you touched on, the situation in Russia, where because they were always hunting for the best margin possible, they ended up getting this facility in Russia. And then the sanctions landed and the people that own the building, you know, they took advantage of a situation there. And that right there, I thought was a mortal wound to Compass Mining. But I, I, I think, too, you look at all this is happening, Dad, right at the time when mining profits are super low. And a lot of them are getting margin called, too. So it's just a real pressure cooker effect. Mining is a brutal game and everyone piling into mining on the upswing. To me, that was a red flag. In Bitcoin, I feel like following the herd is how you get wrecked. And the people who made money mining were the people who were preparing to mine in the bear market. They were up and running before the bull market started. And then they just rode that bull market. Bitcoin really doesn't reward short termism in my opinion. And I think that Compass was mostly people FOMOing into mining. I think a lot of them are 
probably not going to have done very well financially as a result of that decision. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Should we move on to space? Yeah. Do you want to take this one? Do you know about space chains? Space chains, the new side chain proposal. I don't really know much other than it's an idea, I think, and maybe I, maybe this is impossible, but I think the idea is, is to offer a one-way peg uh, for, I guess, maybe a way to introduce stable coins that are pegged to Bitcoin? So I don't think that stable coins are specifically talked about in space chains, but the space chain is a way to do a trustless one-way peg. So right now, Bitcoin doesn't really have native side chain capability. The closest thing we have is probably the liquid federation, which is a federated trust model. So basically, it's a multi-sig wallet on Bitcoin. And then the federation does a bunch of complicated stuff to make it so that you can peg in and then they can peg out of that multi-sig wallet. And it creates and redeems tokens on this sidechain called Liquid. And in the past, I've said that I'm a Liquid maximalist. And I guess my belief is wavering simply because I've never met anyone else who used Liquid or liked Liquid. (laughs) So I think that maybe Blockstream should sponsor this pod because I might be the only user of the Liquid sidechain. Right. I think it's a good idea. So, okay, what would you peg to? That's what I was, that's what I don't understand is uh, what, besides stablecoins, what would you want to peg to Bitcoin? Is it like a derivative? So I think the term peg makes everyone think of stablecoins because it's like, oh, this is pegged to a dollar. You know, it means that this is a token and it somehow should always equal a dollar. But I think in this context, the one way peg means that if there is a side chain, let's call it Chris chain, I can take a Bitcoin and I can send it to Chris chain. But from the perspective of the Bitcoin blockchain, what I've actually done is burn that Bitcoin. That Bitcoin is unusable now. Like it's sent to a burn address, essentially. But that burn address is kind of watched by the sidechain, the space chain software. And now this space chain is called Chris chain. And when it sees a Bitcoin being burned, it creates one Chris coin. And now the Chris coin is on the Chris chain, and maybe there are some interesting properties of that chain. So maybe it has confidential transactions and all sorts of stuff, but you can never get out of that chain. That Bitcoin can only go in, it can never come out. And so you can sell Chris coin for Bitcoin through a market, but you can never actually redeem Bitcoin directly out of the protocol, if that makes sense. Okay. I'm still struggling to find a use case for that, but I could like you what you touched on there maybe private transactions or something like that maybe but then I would why not just use Monero but yeah okay all right it's it's in, it's an interesting idea I suppose I think that you're right that an obvious use case of space chains is sort of hard to justify at this point that said Ruben is really thoughtful and I'm glad he's working on it because it's the sort of research and technology that is not going to make sense maybe like liquid sidechain until something happens and Bitcoin is really expensive. But when that day happens, we will have space chains and other side chains and we will be ready. I see. I see. I think it's fascinating, but it's definitely kind of like Bitcoin blockchain nerd stuff. Not really anything you're going to use soon. Sure. And we should say the news here is that Ruben has received a grant to actually work on this as full time. So we'll see some interesting development. We'll probably get Um, a clearer understanding as Ruben spends more time on this. And it's great to see companies funding Bitcoin research. There's just so much money in altcoins that it really gets me down sometimes when I think about all of the money that's being incinerated on altcoin projects 
that will never do anything useful other than enrich the people who are running that startup. So when I see grants to people like Ruben, I feel that's very positive. Yeah, it's good to see people want to spend their money on these things. Now, one interesting aspect of the Gillibrand Loomis crypto bill was that they were going to solicit feedback on GitHub. And I thought that was, you know, on the one hand, kind of cool. On the other hand, it seems like they're trying to be down with the kids, maybe. But I peeked into that GitHub repository. And on the one hand, there's some interesting conversation. On the other hand, I linked to a thread where someone is linking to pictures of bears. Yeah, these are great pictures of bears, though, really. They are amazing. That is that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Also, there's one that's like, hey, I discovered a large loophole. And then the first comment is, that's a long ass post. And I'm just going to assume you're a racist. (laughs) This is classic Internet. And the loophole is actually a good comment, because what they're saying is that the way that the crypto bill is written, you can pretend to be a open source software company. And really, you can just create a shadow security and sell it and say it's a commodity based on this bill because there's a loophole in it. Yeah, the commenter says there's four steps to reproduce this error. So they're, they're creating like an actual bug report on GitHub, which I think is also it, it's a meta joke in itself. And it's, again, Internet brilliance. Uh, steps to reproduce. Step one, build a software business. Step two, adopt some practices like open source software and payment in, quote, tokens. Step three, or don't, just pay lip service to these. Step four, sell your tokens as an investment to people who expect to profit off the work your team does on the project. The error is my business appears as a head of hog when I try to load it into the court system. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is great. This is a great post and uh, has some references in here, including the first reference is the Bitcoin white paper, which is great. But also it references the Howey test because it says securities, a contract, transaction or scheme whereby a person invests money in a common enterprise and it's led to expect profits from the efforts of others. This is a real issue because this is such a gigantic loophole that it would essentially legalize altcoin scamming. Right. And Loomis is sort of perceived as this pro-Bitcoin senator. And I think that there is a sense that She expresses that Bitcoin is the main thing, but she gets a lot of money from altcoins and the altcoin lobby. So this is really, in my view, an altcoin bill. U.S. Senate candidate Brian Solston would point out that the tax exemption for small Bitcoin transactions is actually really, really important because it gives space for Bitcoin to kind of grow among common people and kind of grow as a as a network in the United States. But to me, the real party is the altcoin carve outs of this bill. And it's not going to get passed, but it's going to be reference for future legislation. I don't have time for any of this anyways, because I need to save up money for the new Solana phone. I'm switching to the Solana phone, and I'm going to get the Solana (laughs) stack on my Android devices in the meantime. Oh, really? So tell me, Chris, what exactly is so special about the Solana phone? Why couldn't I take my rooted Pixel 5 running privacy-focused Graphene OS and do something Solana-related on it. Well, you see, Dad, uh, almost 7 billion people use smartphones around the world. More than 100 million people hold digital assets. So now it's an opportunity to bring those two things together while they continue to grow. So Solana Labs introducing the Sega, a flagship Android mobile phone with a unique functionality. It's either Sega or the the Saga. I think it's actually the Saga. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, what a saga it's going to (laughs) be. 
I can't believe this. But yet I can totally believe this. Now, I included this because I feel like you have some history with projects suddenly launching a mobile phone. And generally speaking, it never works out. Oh, boy. Boy, I could tell you the stories. There once was a great Linux desktop called Ubuntu, and then their company focused on Ubuntu Touch, and now, well, now they're a cloud company. Also, there was once this organization that was dedicated to a web browser called Firefox, and they messed around with mobile, and well, now they're hanging on by a thread. I mean, over and over again. In fact, it's almost a bit of a disease in the free software world. There's this just relentless focus on conquering the mobile platform, and it's a, it's a real backwards-looking mentality. The smartphone's a, it's a baked product at this point. I think the iPhone just turned 15 years old. We're into the market now. And we've got our Coke and our Pepsi. But the uh, technology crowd, especially VCs, because I think they're always going to change the world, they think they're going to do it. They think they're the next Steve Jobs, and they're going to do something that nobody's ever seen before, and it's going to bring users over. Instead of trying to, like, if you'll excuse the overused metaphor, skate to where the puck is going, right? They're looking at where the puck's at and thinking, well, we can do better. And so inevitably they put all this resources and all this time into creating something that's already a totally dominated market because there's so many factors. You have carrier agreements, you have store outlets, you've got FCC certifications here in the United States, you've got ecosystem expectations with app stores and streaming platforms that all have to be on these devices. When you're building an Android device like they are here with the Saga, you got to work with Google. Right. You got to work with manufacturers like Samsung for the parts and Qualcomm. And you've got to license all of that stuff. And there's real restrictions and real costs and real constraints. And pretty soon you have all the constraints that Samsung and all the other manufacturers have. But you're tiny. Instead of building the next thing, they try to compete with the current thing and it inevitably consumes them. And there's no way that they have the infrastructure or the know-how, the internal competence to enter into the mobile game. And Frankly, it's just ridiculous because the whole point of Web3 is that it's software and they're building a physical device. So you can just add a Web3 <laughs> app to your phone. Now you're doing Web3. Why the hell would you need a special phone for that? It completely defeats the point. It's like physical NFTs. A physical NFT is called a painting. They say that it, quote, needs a novel hardware device to embrace the future of Web3. So you got to have novel hardware for the future Web3. And you need an ecosystem uh, also. But speaking of NFT, so when you buy your $1,000 Solana phone, if you get it early enough, if you are elite enough, you will get the Saga Pass, which is not a Sega Pass, which sounds like it'd be a lot cooler, but the Saga Pass, which is an NFT that accompanies the first wave of devices. Oh my God. <laughs> two thoughts, two thoughts. First of all, they're getting sued for Saga Pass because that's Sega is a trademark and they're probably infringing. And two... Is this NFT going to crash the Solana network for a few days? <laughs> and when the phone launches, the network goes down. Too much traffic. Can't handle the 10 devices that are coming online. Yeah. Oh, man. For um, anyone who doesn't care about Solana, because you shouldn't, I think that at least once and possibly multiple times, NFT issuances on Solana have brought down their chain. And so then they need to get on Discord. Is Discord Web3? I thought Discord was just a company servers, but maybe it's Web3 now. It can be if they want it to be. They can just say it's Web3. The thing is, you need to put a little three on the logo. Now it's Web3. And then they talk on Discord and the five nodes or 10 nodes or however many nodes are running on this network because it's completely centralized. They all talk and then they start at the same time. And now it works for a couple more days. Yeah, I laugh. I laugh good at this. It's, I got a good chuckle. If they are lucky, 
they survive this because they got so much money that gets thrown at them, especially if the bear market return, or I mean the uh, bull market returns are going to get so much money thrown at them. If they survive this, if they're lucky from that, what they'll have is probably a developer kit, an API that could be baked into applications that want to use NFTs as event passes to go to a technology event or a concert. It'll work with the NFC chip and they'll have an API that does all of that. If they're lucky, that'll be the end result of this. They'll spend way too much time and money and effort on the physical hardware. That'll fail, and they'll have to reduce and refocus and pivot. And what they'll pivot to is just basically a developer kit and an API. What's so weird about this is I expected this story at the top of the bull market, not in the middle of the bear market. So it feels like they got their timing wrong on this little piece of news that was designed to pump the price of Solana. Very good point. Isn't that funny? That must be because of just hardware and stuff like that and the supply chain. Who knows? But yeah, any good news right now is completely ignored. It's a real phenomenon that I've been watching. And it's so funny because stories have come out just this week that I think would have traditionally pumped Bitcoin's price 10, maybe even 15 percent didn't even register on the price just because it's a bear market right now. It's like people are only sensitive to negative news, positive news. You just don't believe it or something. You had the chairman of the SEC come out and say, Bitcoin is the only one I'll say is a commodity. I won't say anything else. They all look like securities to me. So if you have Gary Gensler saying that on CNBC during their morning broadcast with Jim Cramer. Watch out, Ethereum. That traditionally would have pumped the price. The price, because it was on the morning bell show as the market was opening. You have Gensler saying that Bitcoin's a commodity, but I won't say anything else is, right? But not even a blip on the price action during a bear market. So to launch this phone now, well, it's it's like trying to relaunch Luna right now. It's just you you don't do it. <laughs> you wait. And I honestly think that's why El Salvador is waiting on their bond. I think you wait until the market's better. Otherwise, it's going to flop. Oh, completely. The other thing about the El Salvador bond is just that it was cool if big institutions like pension funds wanted to do something Bitcoiny but via a a bond structure. But actually, if you have an open investment mandate like a retail investor or a small hedge fund, then the Bitcoin bond was a bad deal because what you really wanted to do was buy El Salvador's regular bonds and then also buy Bitcoin and you get a much better mix than the Bitcoin bond. Right. That makes sense. And speaking of a mess, did we say mess? I guess because the El Salvador bond is a mess or the phone is a mess. Everything's a mess. It is. Yeah. Everything's a mess during the bear market. We have a economic Twitter thread. Now, normally our economic section is organized around some tight articles, but that didn't happen this week. It just feels like there's general negativity, but I haven't heard any great analysis or a catalyst event sort of ties it all together. So this Twitter thread just covers a couple themes that we have been talking about for a while. And the first is a chart that shows the U.S. National Petroleum Reserve level, and it's basically diving into the ground. The chart doesn't have a correct zero bound, so it looks like it's going to zero, but it's not. It's just reduced by 30 to 40 percent in the past three years, but the majority of that drawdown has been since mid-2021. This chart could be misleading, right? Because on the one hand, if this is the full U.S. SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, then a strategic resource is being sold off basically to have a small effect on gas prices. So that's definitely short-term thinking at its worst, because this is for a real crisis. So 
if we really have energy restrictions, like because of conflict or more supply chain breakdowns, there won't be that buffer that sort of just can keep the economy and the world going so that people can still get food on the table. At the same time, there have been different policies about the SPR recently, and I have heard that some private enterprises are storing oil there. So this might not all be government oil. Some might be company oil that's briefly being parked in the SPR. And I can't differentiate from this chart, but it's definitely worrying. It speaks to demand for oil not being met. And that's important because oil, as you will see later in this thread, is a huge part of our economy and just the systems that keep humans alive on this planet. Yeah. The energy situation may prove to be the wound that truly brings us into rough economic times. I think when you said like there hasn't been a, a strong, like clear economic signal or message this week, I think it's because you're seeing a lot of indicators start to combine. Like something is clearly building. We just got another negative GDP number. Um, Europe is dealing with record high inflation. They just announced they're going to raise rates for the first time in 11 years. And then you look at the energy situation. And essentially, the reality is, is every refinery that we do have online right now is operating at capacity. And so we just don't have enough refinery capacity. And we're going into a high usage season for the summer. But then also the fall and the winter are extremely high energy usage seasons. And like you touched on, we're draining our reserves. And I feel like the energy situation is probably like an eight year problem. It's going to be better and worse in this next eight years. But I think we're looking at an eight-year problem at best, and that strategic reserve is going to be, well, I mean, it's just going to dwindle. It's going to dwindle and dwindle, and then we're going to be in a situation that could be even bad for national security. And because you can't really fill up the reserve unless you're in a cheap oil period. Otherwise, filling up the reserve is going to cause oil prices to skyrocket because the price is sort of on the marginal buyer. So if you add more demand to the system, like the demand to fill the SPR, then you're just pushing oil prices to the moon, and that makes the problem worse, at least in the short term. And talking about a long-term energy crisis, that brings us to the second point. It's a link to a comment on Twitter that points out that there is a massive oil producer that actually has more reserves than Saudi Arabia, and they could theoretically solve this oil crisis, but that producer is Venezuela, and their economy's fallen apart, their petroleum extraction infrastructure has fallen apart, even if Venezuela's political problems were solved tomorrow, they've run down their infrastructure to the point that it would probably be 10 years before they can actually start exporting commodities to the rest of the world. There's no white horse that's going to save energy markets. We're moving into a scarcity scenario for the extended future. And the third link is a chart that basically illustrates the flows of oil and gas. And the TLDR is that oil and gas is drawn down. There's sort of excess demand during the winter months. And then during the summer, reserves build again, and then they're drawn down again over the rest of the year. However, this year, there was never any building of reserves during the summer. And so supplies are just being drawn straight down in a line. And it just means that there's no letting up of this oil, gas, whatever crisis. It's just it's not going anywhere because for prices to let up, you need to see supply building up. Yeah. That means that, okay, we've got enough. I can't use any more right now, so you can store some, mm -hmm. but no one's giving that signal. Everyone's like, 
if you have more, give it to me now. And the price is increasing as a result. And of course, the timing with the sanctions and Russia have just really made this problem much, much worse because we were just really starting to feel the rubber band effects of when oil crashed at peak lockdown during COVID. You remember, the? I think the price of oil even went negative for a day. It really dropped. And so you had an entire market sort of readjust, set new production quotas and all these kinds of things that we're still dealing with ramifications of there. On top of all of that, then just as we're kind of at the other end of that rubber band snap, we then sanction 15% of the world's oil market. Of course, not everyone's participating in those sanctions either. India, for example, Iran, for example, China, for example, they're buying Russian oil. The real joke about sanctions is that there were massive carve-outs, at least for gas, but I think also oil for some countries. And so what the sanctions actually did was create the biggest current account surplus in Russian history, because they still can sell their main commodity, oil and gas, but they can't import all of the goods that normal humans need. So these sanctions were a direct face punch to ordinary Russians, and they don't seem to have really slowed down the Russian invasion of Ukraine significantly. And they've completely messed up global energy markets, global food markets, because it's also screwed up the production of fertilizer. I have to say, it just seems like really, really terrible, poorly thought out policy. And I'm not being pro-aggression here. It's just that no one seemed to have considered the consequences of these sanctions. And that's really, really concerning to me. What gets me upset is to make matters worse, they murdered the reserve currency status of the U.S. dollar in this process as well. When they weaponized the dollar like they did, they sent a signal to the rest of the world that, hey, we'll go after any nation that goes against the group. And I think just self-incentives will, other nations will look at that action and go, okay, we, we got to rebalance. And we're already seeing Israel do it. They're already beginning. They're at historic lows for U.S. dollars in their reserves because you got to imagine they're looking at this situation and going, well, if we ever cross the United States, we don't want to end up like Russia. It's just in their best interest. And so we started that process for all of this to inevitably put Russia in a more successful position and to draw them closer to China and to India and Iran. For what? So that way we could like devastate what? The West? It's really, it really is horrible. And we're going into a long period. And of course, as a result, the world will become more and more risk off. The price of Bitcoin is going to be suppressed. And I don't think it's going to be suppressed for a short term. I think we could be looking at a long term price suppression unless some sort of monetary pivot happens at, at a macro level. Well, I'm not sure about that because I think that in a world where Bitcoin trades like the NASDAQ 100, like a risky tech stock, then a world of scarcity is not very stimulative for the Bitcoin price. But to be honest, I feel like, and this is just a feeling, I'm just pulling this out of my hat, we're close to a phase transition because Bitcoin has this property of being seizure resistant. When you take custody of your Bitcoin, no one can sanction you. They'd have to physically grab you and throw you in jail. No one can seize you like they're seizing Russian assets abroad or Russia's seizing the assets of foreign companies in Russia who are not publicly supporting their war in Ukraine. I think that Bitcoin really protects people from political policy too. If that aspect of Bitcoin becomes more valuable to people in a world of crazy policy and sanctions and non-judicial extra legal seizures of assets. There's no way to do an extra legal seizure of Bitcoin in your own wallet. Doesn't matter what your politics are or if the political consensus turns against you. 
by holding Bitcoin, you have made a certain portion of your financial existence completely immune to these political risks. I agree with all of that. The one area where I'm a little concerned is if we're going into a period of extreme energy pricing and energy constraints, I could see a real negative wave towards Bitcoin mining. Um, and I could also see a, more and more miners needing to get out of the business as the rates just don't make sense for them. And I could see that having a knock-on effect for the Bitcoin price. I could see a lot of negative press around that. I don't know. It's just Bitcoin has, not only has Bitcoin always existed in a quantitative easing policy, but it's also existed in a period of relatively cheap energy. And both those situations have changed. I guess that doesn't really worry me because I never particularly liked large industrial Bitcoin mining companies, simply in the sense that they were vulnerable to regulation. But I'm reassured by the fact that so many of them are struggling today because I think that the best outcome for Bitcoin is that mining is just a dog-eat-dog game and miners are incentivized in bull markets to lever up and go risk on and try to maximize their Bitcoin, but then they can't support their operations in a bear market and they kind of implode. And if industrial mining is sort of hindered by a high energy environment, that can push mining back to the edges of the network, back to people in their garages who might have solar or wind or something on their property or some arrangement where mining makes sense. And another cool thing is as the hash power falls, mining at higher energy prices makes sense. Right. I think that because Satoshi created this difficulty adjustment in Bitcoin, the difficulty always balances with the economics of the energy that's being used to mine Bitcoin. And so far, the system has survived a lot of shocks. So I don't think the next one is going to be even worse than previous rises and falls in hash rate. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And I think also there is a real possibility that this incentivizes the rest of the market to search out renewables, to do, you know, methane capture. Uh, it could just incentivize that even more to take advantage of those cheaper sources of power. And ultimately, the network has a massive excess hash rate for what it really needs for the size of the transactions, the hash rate could come down tremendously and the Bitcoin network would still be perfectly secure. So we have room in there. We have play. And I said this almost 13 years ago, 12 years ago on air, and I still believe it's true today. I think Bitcoin could completely crash. And as long as you had two or three people that were still running the software, the whole process would start over again because the scarcity element of it, because of the utility of being able to transfer value over the internet to a wallet address that doesn't require currency conversions or Western Union, that fundamental utility combined with the scarcity would just reset the process all over again. We will never see it stop. And so like, it's always going to be advantageous to hold a little Bitcoin. Like Satoshi said, you know, you might want to hold a little bit just in case this thing takes off. It's the reality of it. It's going to take off even if it goes back to zero. Briefly, because I'd buy it at that price. I'd buy all of it at that price. Honestly, and I'm not even kidding, like, I am thinking, like, is there something I could sell? Is there some way I could put together some money? Because I don't know if this is going to happen, and I don't know what the time frame would be, but I am mentally preparing myself right now for a $9,000 Bitcoin price. I think that's entirely possible. I think we could see an S&P of, like, 2900 and I think we could see a Bitcoin around 9000 And because I'm pretty convinced that could happen, I'm starting to really try to figure out how to put the funds together because that feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity. And if I miss a $9,000 Bitcoin, I may never forgive myself. 
Yeah, you've got some pretty cool computers. I might make you an offer. <laughs> now, the next two articles in this thread are both from Jeffrey Schneider. Now, I've mentioned Jeffrey Schneider before, I think. You might know him as the Eurodollar guy. And a brief introduction to the concept of a Eurodollar. It's a confusing term because now we have this currency called the Euro. But actually, Eurodollar was a term that came before the Euro. And it simply means a dollar deposit outside of the United States. And I think it was because the original Eurodollars were deposits of dollars in Swiss bank accounts or something like that. Now, Jeffrey Schneider has a really contrarian view of the financial system. I would say he's the ultimate contrarian because his point is that the Federal Reserve isn't just inept, they're actually powerless. And everything that the Fed does is this psychological game with investors. And in many ways, I agree with this reading of Fed policy. I think that when the Fed changes policy rates. It's not like this immediately moves through the economy. It's clearly a, a sort of market psychology signaling mechanism from where I'm standing, though other opinions exist. But Jeffrey's point broadly is that the entire world is running on dollars, these euro dollars, these dollars that exist outside the United States. And because of the mechanics of rehypothecation and credit creation, the world is actually always short dollars. The world needs more dollars. And the fundamental phenomenon, according to Jeffrey, in our world today is the world constantly running out of dollars in new and exciting ways that crash the economy. And what he's saying in the next two articles, which I won't dive into deeply because we could just talk about them for hours. They're really complicated, but he has data to make his point. I think that maybe his point is perhaps too strongly made. I couldn't really defend against him because he's, he's really deep into the numbers. But basically, he's looking at data and suggesting that what's happening globally is signs of dollar shortages in the global economy, and that this is the driver of recession, not you know what the Fed's doing with interest rates. This whole situation where there's a constant demand for dollars around the world for trade and for all these different things, I suspect and maybe you could tell me if I'm wrong, but doesn't this sort of explain why since 2008, the dollar supply could just be nearly parabolic <laughs> in growth and it didn't really seem to have an immediate inflation effect? It really, it took until really 2020 before we started seeing inflation really skyrocket, even though they were printing money like nuts since 2008. Is it because simply there was a demand for those dollars besides the obvious asset price inflations we saw? Absolutely. I think that's definitely part of it. There was just this global deflationary impulse and a lack of dollars was probably a big part of that deflation. I think that also the way that our monetary system works is that money is created in financial markets today, which means it first flows into financial assets. And so that's where the bubbles come from. We don't live in Weimar, Germany, where money creation happens at the government warehouse where they're paying people. And so the money immediately flows into goods that workers buy, like bread and milk. So that's just a aspect of the structure of our economy today. But on the subject of deflation, the next graphic is this population chart. And what it's showing is that estimation of Chinese population have been revised downwards by millions and millions of people. What this means is that China has 
incredibly bad demographics. They have a very top-heavy population, meaning a lot of older people, and there aren't enough young people sort of coming up to replace them. As I said in the last episode, China is in many ways the source of price deflation in manufacturing and in goods, and it was because there were many Chinese people who are willing to work in factories at pretty low wages by global standards to produce goods for the world. And this flooded the world with goods, and it made things cheap for a long time. Well, in addition to changing preferences, because in my experience, I don't think that younger Chinese people aspire to work in factories anymore, they also simply don't have the population to do that anymore. You might think, okay, well, there's still India, right? Couldn't India do that? And I would say, I don't think so. It seems that India is not so internationally integrated as China, and it seems to be a more sort of chaotic and less centrally managed economy. And so there won't be any rapid onlining of Indian international production capacity because they just don't seem to have that kind of politics to to seize that opportunity. So this, to me, reads like much more inflation in the pipeline because we just don't have the young people who are willing to work long hours for low pay to make sure that Walmart shelves are stocked with the latest cheap stuff at bargain prices. I'd argue it's a similar demographic situation in the West and especially here in the United States. I mean, we're seeing this still everywhere is hiring, especially service jobs. Uh, There's a local burger place here that's offering $17.50 an hour it's, it's so much money in, in terms of like what, how I view wages. I was like, God, maybe I should take a second job for a little bit and stack some sats because $17.50 sounds great. Uh, and they still can't fill the positions. Uh, but, you know, it's in part because I think people don't want to work really crappy jobs that don't give them anything back and just take, take, take. And I think there has been a bit of a global perspective shift. And I don't know if lockdowns contributed or not, but it seemed to really start happening. Uh, around them when people sort of reevaluated a lot of things in life. And even if we were to bring this manufacturing, say we had the demographics to support it, even if we were to bring that manufacturing back to, say, the United States, that in itself would be an extreme inflationary act. Yeah, for sure, because you'd have to build new factories, you'd have to train people up. That's a lot of investment. And the prices of what you're producing would have to reflect that. So that means that prices of things that previously were made overseas would have to be much higher to justify that investment in reshoring industry. But I think we're going to get there, frankly. So who knows what the future holds? It could be positive long term. It just may be hard getting there. A hundred percent. I think that maybe this episode has a slightly depressing theme, but I just want to emphasize I am so bullish on Bitcoin and humanity long term. I think that our political problems, our social problems, our energy problems, I mean, human civilization has periods of plenty that make people complacent and make politics lazy. And I think we see that in bad policy and very shallow thinking from our leaders. And unfortunately, I believe that this will lead to the harsh medicine of needing to really care who's got their hand on the levers of power, because we don't have a lot of slack in this system. You know, we're flying the plane very close to the mountain cliffs. And so if someone's hand twitches, we could really run into problems. And clearly we will. I think it's just a process. When things get tough, we respond and we have to kind of find political and social and technological solutions to these problems. And obviously Bitcoin is one of these solutions. 
And you know, it's funny if you notice too, when you look back and you look at refineries and you look at nuclear power plants and the, the theme you'll always find is yeah, they, they were built in the seventies. We haven't built any since the seventies. Well, why is that? Because during the seventies, we were also were having extremely high inflation. We were experiencing an energy crisis and it led to a lot of building and innovation. It took a while to get there, but we built infrastructure that has lasted us 40, 50 years as a result during that period. And I think that's what these next 10 years are going to be or so. Uh, we'll see some restructuring. We'll see some laws change. We'll see some innovation happen. And on the other side of it, hopefully, you know, before, before 10 years, we'll be in a much better position. I agree. Long term, very, very bullish. And I think long term, Bitcoin will benefit from all of this as well. And it'll bring a new generation of wealth to people that were all at different levels of the economic spectrum when all of this began. And that's going to be extremely positive, too. And you'll see new businesses and jobs created because of that. Right. If it turns out that Chris and I were right and everyone who was sort of like a contrary thinker rolled into Bitcoin and it all works out for them, that's a whole new generation of investors who don't have a lot of respect for JP Morgan and Wells Fargo, right? Who knows what those people will invest in? I imagine stuff like nuclear, like practical stuff that yeah, really yeah. we need. And that brings us to the last element of this thread, which is this absolutely terrifying infographic. And it basically shows global energy consumption by source. And what this reveals is something that I think I've been trying to express for a while. So I'm glad we found this image. I'll put a link in the show notes directly to it. It shows that 80% of global energy is coming from gas, oil, and coal. 80%. All this talk about renewables and it's like the skin of the apple and underneath is just oil and gas. And there's hydro and nuclear in there too, but it's really oil and gas. And that is what is used to build the solar panels and the wind turbines. Now, when I look at this chart, what I think is, okay, what can scale? What can scale and kind of eat the lunch of oil and gas to sort of clean up this energy mix? And the answer is nuclear. That's the only one that scales. Right. You know, we can't really build infinite hydro, especially because global warming is affecting rain and snowmelt. And so that can mess up the assumptions around building dams. And also dams are ecological disasters. But, you know, nuclear is the thing where you can basically build infinite nuclear plants. There is enough fissile material to do that. And there's even the possibility to create almost 100% efficient nuclear supply chains using fast-breeding plutonium reactors, which is obviously terrifying. Everyone should be afraid of plutonium. But like, hey, if it means limitless clean energy, we have to go there, right? But um, look, nuclear is not on the table for the next 10 years, maybe the next 20 years. You know, people really need maybe. to... It's, it's just not there maybe. politically. Maybe. Uh, things can change quick. There can, be a, there can be a political change of wind quick sometimes, especially these days. It, I mean, you can be, your head can spin how fast. Because here's what. I went down the YouTube rabbit hole a couple of days ago, Dad, and I have to say, man, there is some really impressive tech that's getting out there. And there's some big names out there that are pushing this stuff, including Gates. So uh, the thing that's so brilliant about the nuke power option is it so complements the build out we're doing already with the electric car charging and so many things that are based around lithium batteries. It, it is such a nice complement to that because we're, we're creating ourselves a situation where there's going to be an unbelievable energy demand in a few years from electric cars. And so you need something <laughs> that isn't gas or oil or coal. And hydro is very limited. So it's just so perfect to kind of slip right in there and provide power to a grid that's already taxed. And it's, I think it has to happen because you lay out the facts, 
You get a politician that can clearly articulate those facts and people are hurting from energy prices. And I think the rest just writes itself. I want to echo your enthusiasm, but I have three negatives that I would shoot at that. Okay. The first is before anything can happen in terms of deploying new nuclear technology, you need to have political consensus. And I just don't see political consensus or productive political debate around complicated topics happening for some time. Now, once you get that, now you need to build out nuclear infrastructure. So obviously you're talking about some small self-contained nuclear systems. Very cool, very cool tech. Some has already been deployed in testing environments, but widespread deployment of that will take a lot of time and they're necessarily small. When you look at this graph of energy mix, 80% is still oil and gas. So what does that mean? It means that we need traditional massive nuclear plants that provide gigawatts of power. But the problem is these plants are so hard to build, and it's so hard to build them on time. They generally take minimum 10 years to build. So if it takes us five years to get consensus and 10 years to start building new plants, we're not going to get big, wide-scale, huge amounts of nuclear electricity until 15 years out. Now, in terms of the new interesting tech, the smaller reactors, I agree. I'm totally bullish on that long term. But in the short term, I don't think that's a technology that works until we somehow resolve social contradictions and we get to some kind of consensus view of society where people can calm down and stop being so crazy. Because if we are putting nuclear batteries in our environment and we're in a world where people are going nuts and like having road rage, going on mass shootings and stuff, well now, you know, you can stick an M80 in a portable nuclear battery and have a radiological event that can contaminate a piece of property for a thousand years. Oh my God, that's not a technology for an unstable society, in my view. Yeah. So I think yeah. that there's a lot of steps we have to get through. And to me, that means we need to go through probably a longer period of pain and strife so that at the end of that, we can kind of come to consensus on what the social contract is, what our responsibilities as humans and citizens and voters are, you know, and not this situation now where it's like people can live in completely different realities and even believe different versions of history. Right. It's going to be a bit of work. You know what I mean? Like it's going to that's not something that happens in the next six months. That's not. And I don't even know how you get to a stable society without stable energy and abundant energy. Like it doesn't seem like that's even possible. Yeah. Chicken and egg, right? Yeah. God, I thought we didn't have anything. And we were talking about that for like an hour. That's how it always goes. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Which brings us to tokenomics. Did we talk about Three Arrows Capital last week? I, I feel like we did. Uh, did we? Uh, I mean, maybe if we did, it was the first time. I feel like we've not really talked about them much at all. I, they were just sort of like this background player in the crypto scene. Yeah, it's really interesting. Three Arrows Capital is actually a bigger mess than Celsius. And they're actually a straight up fraud. Whereas in my conversation with Crypto Mom, it's clear that Celsius was shady. But straight up fraud, that's a difficult question from a lawyer's perspective. With Three Arrows, there is no such difficult question. Three Arrows has falsified bank statements. They've lied to investors. They've stolen the funds of projects that were allowing Three Arrows to manage their treasuries for some reason. They're a straight up criminal enterprise. And Suzu and Kyle, whatever his name is, who were the principals there, they're hiding out in Singapore, but they probably can't travel now. Because it seems like global financial authorities are taking action against them rapidly. A um, British Virgin Islands judge just liquidated one of their corporate structures because I think they tried to sort of like 
move assets to a new corporate structure to hide them from bankruptcy. They were trying to play games there. It's wild because this is actually the contagion, maybe. This is the Lehman moment in the crypto ecosystem because they were involved in all sorts of protocols and and schemes. And what probably blew them up fundamentally and turned them from a risky but legitimate hedge fund into a straight-up financial fraud was they were big into the grayscale Bitcoin trust cash and carry trade, where you buy Bitcoin, put it into the GBTC trust, which will pay you a premium briefly before that reversed, and then pocket the difference. And they didn't get out of that trade fast enough, and that just wrecked them. And then instead of admitting the loss and going home and winding up the fund, they went full Ponzi fraud to try and lever up and get a huge win that paid off everything. But that never works out because that just forces them into riskier and riskier trades. And Yeah. And I don't know for sure with Three Arrows, but I believe with Three Arrows, BlockFi and Celsius, all three of them had one thing in common, too, that really screwed them. They had a bunch of their value locked up in staked ETH and they couldn't get this ETH out. And so they had, you know, they could have maybe in some case provided some more liquidity for a loan or something like that, but they couldn't get the ETH out. And then the staked Ether tokens all dropped in value. So it's an aspect of proof of stake that you and I have briefly touched on in the past when like, say, Luna crashed and people had their their Luna staked and they couldn't get it out. Here we have a situation where they were making, you know, they're making great yields, bro, on their staked ETH, but it's locked up and you can't get it out until after the merger has been done for a bit. And that played a factor in their collapse, which is just remarkable. And this is why all of the altcoins that are, in my view, completely valueless, they love proof of stake because it gets people to lock up their funds and it liquidity squeezes the price higher. Those founders, they never lock up their funds. They're always ready to sell any high, but they convince retail and even institutions to lock up funds because they'll earn yield. But there's no real yield there. Yield comes from productive investment. This is just a financial game, yeah. in my view. It yeah. doesn't provide security, but it does provide nice tokenomics for pumpy trading. It's Wall Street LARPing, and it inevitably, uh, of course, was going to result in this. And all of this is resulting in a lot of rumors and like back-channel leaks and people getting on investor calls and email threads that are getting forwarded to reporters. Like We're getting a lot of information that honestly can't always be confirmed during all of this. Like There was a rumor that FTX was going to buy Celsius, but chose to pass on Celsius because they saw a $2 billion hole in their balance sheet. But yet they are acquiring BlockFi for maybe a fire sale price, but we don't know for sure. It's wild right now. Yeah. And Zach Prince is denying the price because the rumor is that BlockFi is going to be bought for $25 million after getting a round of financing that valued them at over a billion. So it's basically like it's going to wipe out all their shareholders. Though I think their depositors, people with funds on the platform, should be okay. But, I mean, they took a big risk with BlockFi. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's definitely some schadenfreude for me in this because, you know, I looked at all these lending businesses and I thought, fundamentally, this is a risky model. And I don't like the way that people are acting as if it's just such a smart thing to do. And, you know, I found Zach Prince and the other proponents of these schemes to be, in my view, disingenuous. You know, you had Zach Prince going around doing the podcast circuit, telling everyone how good things were going at BlockFi. I imagine that Zach is smart enough to never tell a lie. He talks very carefully. You know, I'm sure his team did a good job with what they were, what tasks they were given. At the same time, 
fundamentally, this is a business model that involves giving funds to degen traders. Right. And it doesn't sound so good when you phrase it that way. It's exactly what it is. And you have like the Celsius CEO going out saying the same thing. Everything's great. You don't have to worry about your funds. Put them over here. It's totally safe. Trust me, bro. And meanwhile, they're screwing around with staked ETH and Tether and Luna. I don't think we need to say anything more. Going from a 1 billion valuation to a 25 million valuation, that's basically going to zero. I think the, the market kind of said it for us. Yeah, very much so. This last tokenomics piece, I want to ask your opinion on, Chris, because the timing feels really weird. So Ledger is a crypto wallet that supports altcoins, and they've added a yield farming integration. What do you think about that? It's a bad time, right? Because it's like the bear market. This was something, again, they should have done at the top of the bull market. But this has to reduce security, right? And it just seems to encourage risky behavior. Thoughts? Would you recommend Ledger in the future? Yeah, you know, this is, this is an example of where a bear market gives you real clarity. Maybe something that you would have thought seemed appealing when everything's been going up for a year or two, just seems like an obvious red flag now. So I, I am thankful for that clarity. Yeah, because they're rehypothecating your Bitcoin. The whole idea here, right, with a hardware wallet is it's offline, it's safe, the keys are not even attached to the internet. And they're kind of just flipping all of that around as these hardware wallet makers try to add more and more to like a software component. And I'm completely against this. I think this is a dangerous precedent. And I think it sends the wrong message. Uh, you know, a ledger should be should be sending the message of security and safety. And like we are your bastion that prevents things like Celsius and BlockFi happening to you. And so to come in now when we've seen so many people lose their total bag over trying to get great yields, bro, for them to come out and say, hey, come earn via Alchemy Earn, it's it's so tone deaf. It's remarkable. And it gave me, again, really great clarity. I realized going forward, I'm going to take a much stronger stance on this show and uh, with the Jupiter Broadcasting audience. And I'm going to be very clear that uh, if a project that you're using to store your Bitcoin, if they screw around with this kind of stuff, that means their focus is not 100% on making the best possible safe place for your Bitcoin. I personally would never work with anybody that is splitting their focus like this. And this is why I'm just making a firm, hard recommendation for the cold wallet and for Sparrow wallet, two projects that only focus on Bitcoin and they focus on making the best possible device for storing Bitcoin. And they make great documentation to help you understand what they all do. They're a little bit advanced, but they have great docs. And I think I've even, I think at one point I might've even recommended a ledger to my buddy Alex. And I just completely regret it now. Yeah, the cold card is a Bitcoin hardware wallet built by a company manned entirely by Bitcoin maximalists who wear tinfoil hats. And I love them for it because there's research that suggests that you can compromise a Mark III cold card. A Mark IV cold card has yet to be compromised, but it is theoretically possible to compromise a Mark III cold card. What it takes is an incredible specialist and like a million dollars of lab equipment. It takes an electron microscope. That is a security that I think Bitcoin deserves and wants. And you can't tell me that you can build that security when you also have staking in that platform. Because once you add staking, I don't care about security. I want to get those uh, staking referral fees. Yeah. Now that's my business model. Yeah. That's a that's great it. point you made. The features you add kind of determines your business model. Yeah, and how else are they going to make ongoing money from you, either that or a subscription, right? So this is what they're doing, and I just don't like it.
This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it. Host your own media server, control your home IoT devices with a Raspberry Pi, and alternatively, do it all on a cloud virtual private server. I'm doing that myself right now, and the self-hosted show was super useful. So check it out at selfhosted.show or search for the self-hosted show in any podcast app. Am I breaking the rules of Bitcoin education by linking to Eric Wall's critique of Chainlink 2? No. Okay, why is this in Bitcoin education? The first thing is, what's great about Eric is I feel some kinship because I believe that Eric is a thought criminal like myself. This is someone who cannot agree with most people. It just seems impossible for him. And so his research is incredibly antagonistic and he's just trying to find the fallacies in commonly held viewpoints. And I think that's super valuable. I think he's also like a little goofy on Twitter. I think he changed his Twitter profile to Erica Wall. So I don't know what kind of a point he's making there. I, th- I think it's a he. It's sort of beside the point because this paper is fire. Essentially, oracles are a big part of Web3 and all of this DeFi stuff, because essentially you need, like if you want to have a stable coin that's algorithmic or something like that, you need some source of truth that tells you what the price is in the world. And Chainlink was this project to create oracles that would do that, that you could trust. And they've just been compromised so many times and given the wrong price so many times, and it's possible to game them so many times that I guess Chainlink realized that they needed to create a 2.0 to create a solution to the Oracle problem. And the point of Eric's paper is that there is no solution. This is tokenomics at its best or worst, depending on your perspective. And that Chainlink is using all of the tricks to justify their position. They've hired the former chief researcher of the RSA uh, encryption protocol. These are people with huge numbers of academic citations, and they're sort of endorsing this white paper. And Eric doesn't have those credentials. But what Eric can do is construct an argument that a golden retriever could understand about why this doesn't work. And at the end of the day, Chainlink 2.0 relies on you believing that the link token that Chainlink created is really valuable. And that's it. And I think that's all we need to know because it's not. Yep. And it's so silly because you could have, this could have been a useful service without a token at all. You know, it would have been great. If you just didn't have a token involved. And of course, there has to be the link token. And um, they try to sell the hype too on YouTube and on Twitter. They, they try to say that um, in a bear market, there's only one token that will do well. And that's link. Go buy some. Like they're so transparent about their pumping. It's so it's so bad. Right. And the idea, too, is it's just hard. Yeah, Link does the whole staking thing. And the moment you've got staking, you know that there's some tokenomics going on because they want you to stake your link so that, you know, the early founders who got the presale can dump it and not have the price tank so they can make more money. And so they have a super complicated two-tiered proof of stake system. And we all know that proof of stake doesn't work. So if your system relies on proof of stake, it's not going to work. But proof of stake is really good for dumping a worthless token on retail investors. So there you have it. Thank you, Eric. Which brings us to, finally, I guess, our Bitcoin section of the (laughs) podcast. Oh, gosh, we're really going to get it this week because, you know, it was all bear market. We didn't even mention Bitcoin hardly. 
No, that's not true. Don't don't get him going on that. Oh, don't feed him that. I, that's not true. Better cut. They'll take him. They'll run with it. Better hey, cut yeah, you better cut it. Oh, Gotta no. cut it. <laughs> this week's Bitcoin Optech number two hundred six didn't really have any significant news, but it did have links to a bunch of really fascinating posts on the Bitcoin Stack Exchange, and in particular, there's one that might surprise you, Chris, about the maximum size of a multi-sig forum. Yeah, it's something I never really thought of. No, I, I've always thought of like you know, three or four, I suppose, two. <laughs> it's wild, right? Because if you get really big multi-sigs, you know, you could have a multi-sig for a whole organization. You know, there's all sorts of things you could do there. The answer to this question is really quite fascinating. What it gets down to is different address types have different limits. And so pay to script hash basically has a theoretical limit for building a custom multisig of 15 participants. If you use the op check multisig opcode, you have only four options. So you have less options when you use the opcode, but it's more predictable and safer. And this max number of multisig quorum participants is increased to 20 for pay to wrapped script hash. Is that, have I said that right? P2WSH? God, I think so. I mean, these are things you always read, but you never say out loud, too. So right. I think you're doing fine, though. Okay. Which, again, it has a an op check multisig limit of 20, but there is an alternative construction, which gives you a potential 67 participants. So that's just really interesting. But then when you get to pay to taproot address, suddenly you have multisigs that could be theoretically you know, 100,000 participants. And so I think this is kind of cool just to think about, you know, obviously this is a high level take on the article because we've been talking for a while, but Bitcoin is scaling in so many different directions. In my view, it's not just about transaction throughput. It's about sort of base cryptographic primitives and the size of multisigs, the size of contracts and things that you can create with Bitcoin. And this unlocks applications that we can't even imagine yet. So I just want to throw that over the wall and get people thinking about this development, because this is real stuff. It's hard to see. It's not as flashy as releasing a mobile phone or something. I think that this is really what, over time, scales Bitcoin. Yeah, I was also really pleased to see some really solid Lightning network developments. A new L&D beta is out. Also, uh, Core Lightning was updated, mostly bug fixes and stuff like that, but like some really solid, nice incremental improvements that just continue on, right? <laughs> this Bitcoin just keeps on moving forward. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can get in touch, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter. You can also consider joining the Jupiter Broadcasting Matrix channel if you want to say hi. On to boosts. So I don't have access to a boost client. I'm just looking on Fountain like an animal, which is obviously not great. June 26th, the dude was listening to Token Gestures and boosted us 21 sats. My new favorite Bitcoin pod. Hey, thanks, dude. Hey, oh, I think if you boost 21 sats, it's OK. It's not a lot of sats, but it's an important number. Then we got uh, a row of ducks, two, two, two sats from a guy named Ryan. I'm glad you got your lightning situation fixed. The second I heard you needed help, I figured it was time. I grabbed Umbral and helped set up a lightning channel for dear old Bitcoin dad. It's been over a week and my poor Raspberry Pi seems to be asymptomatically approaching 35% synchronization of the Bitcoin chain. But hey, if it ever completes, I'll see about that lightning channel. Wow. Thanks, a guy named Ryan. That is really great. Although it's funny how different people and different devices have radically different blockchain sync times. Mine was three days. 
I've heard people have much faster sync times than that. And then, of course, Ryan there, a week. Oof. Yeah, it's that uh, Raspberry Pi IO. It really kills you. And then we had 500 sats from a user with an auto-generated name. Thank you, anonymous user. And then a row of ducks, 2,222 sats from BHH32. Hey, guys, I've been listening for a while since Chris mentioned the podcast on Linux Unplugged. With the high entry price to mining Bitcoin, it's not really feasible for someone to just home mine it. However, I do have some GPUs and was mining ETH to offload to LTC and BTC. I guess LTC is Litecoin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Once it goes to ETH2, though, it's no longer possible. What do you think about RVN and ERG as alternatives and just keeping them? Hmm. If I was going to mine anything today, it'd be probably Monero, to be honest with you. Although I do grok the idea of like mining something that has some monetary value that might increase over time. Monero, I don't know if that's true or not. Probably. Probably will. And then using that to buy Bitcoin. I get, I get your play there. But honestly, your electricity money and your hardware money might just be better spent DCAing into Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that you're going to be fighting the Bitcoin price on that. If you want to mine for fun because it's interesting to you, can't really comment because I've never done that. The only thing I ever mined was I briefly played around with that honey miner thing, which I think was probably a scam because I never got any Bitcoin. Their idea was they had a client that would like auto mine altcoins in the background and then, you know, give you Bitcoin payouts. But I never got any Bitcoin payouts. So maybe it was a scam. I do admit I love mining. And today, you know, I, if I were to get into mining, I would take it all the way and try to get into a little bit of solar action with it. But I don't know what I'd mine other than Monero. And like I said, I think my money would be better spent DC into Bitcoin. But it is fun. It's what got me into Bitcoin. And we got another row of ducks, 2,222 sats from Apollon Tech. Here is some love. Thanks, Apollon Tech. Feeling the love. Quack, quack. Then we got 3,690 sats from Cass Peeland. Hey, Cass. I knew it was Cass as soon as you said it. <laughs> as soon as you said yeah, the I know. That, that's like a number for him. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Cass. And then at JT sent 5,000 sats. Good episode. My opinion is DuckDuckGo searches are down because people that care about privacy also care about censorship. I do not need anyone censoring my searches for my own good. Ooh, I heard about this. So, JT, I'm not sure that the DuckDuckGo search censorship is malicious. I think that search algorithms actually do, quote unquote, censor the results to like cut out cruft, cut out sources that are known to be or they think are low quality. And so sometimes stuff you want is cut out. I'm not sure that there is a, a political agenda or anything in that story. That was the take of surveillance report. And I, yeah. I kind of trust those guys. For me, the issue is twofold. It's, uh, it's that data sharing agreement with Microsoft. I'm not very comfortable with that. And then the other, which, you know, because I'm using DuckDuckGo to avoid data sharing. And then the other thing is I still struggle with the results. However, in a way, my DuckDuckGo usage is kind of up because there's things that I search for that aren't crazy, you know, weird stuff that I can tell Google isn't giving me the right results. And I pop over to DuckDuckGo and Bing just to check it from time to time. And I generally, if I can't find it on DuckDuck, or if I can't find it on Google, I'll find it on DuckDuck or Bing. I, you know, I use DuckDuckGo for everything and my wife teases me, but it seems to work fine for me. Our next boost comes from Chris, 6,666 sats. Funny title, doing a boost check after a report that they were failing in the matrix chat. And I guess it worked. Yeah, that's good to know. I just wanted to check. And there's not really like a, there's not a great way for, there's not any great ways for me to check if I don't run the node myself. So I just boosted. <laughs> and then our final boost for that episode was from at Bitcoin Lizard. And we have a mega boost, 10,000 sats. 
Oh, boosting the dip. I've thought a lot about how to host Bitcoin services on the public internet without exposing my home IP address and without spending a fortune on a VPS with enough storage for a full Bitcoin node. I've come up with a solution that leverages WireGuard and Firewall D. I guess he's running either CentOS or Fedora, if it's Firewall D, right? Could be, could be Archer Nix. Oh, okay. The server doing the heavy lifting resides on my home network and proxies the internet traffic through an inexpensive VPS. I document the setup in this blog post, blog.bitcoinlizard.net slash, and then there's a the whole thing, but just go to blog.bitcoinlizard.net. Very nice. This is a technique that Wes and I use on occasion when we have a, a Linux Unplugged where we want the audience to be able to remote connect to a studio system, but we don't want to expose the studio public IP. You do uh, a little bit of a port forward, a little bit of a relay, a little bit of a redirect from the VPS back down to your local machine over a wire guard tunnel. It's a great technique, Bitcoin Lizard. Thanks for sending that in. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. It seems really cool. And then we got a thousand sats from True Grits, who was listening to our interview with Brian Solston. He says, I'm going to have to look into him being a Washington resident myself. Smiley face. Yeah, True Grits. Brian Solston is just have a really good impression of him. We had a great talk. There was actually a second part to the interview that I was supposed to release this week, and I was traveling and it just didn't happen. So hopefully I get that out soon. So it might dovetail this episode. True Grits is a local? That's awesome. We should do like a barbecue or something. Come on, True Grits. Come on up to Stu's. We'll do a barbecue one day. Yeah, let's <laughs> hang out. Let's talk some Bitcoin. Cool. So that's all the boosts I got. And if you send in a boost and I missed you, I'm sorry. I am traveling. And so I'm just cannibalizing the data from Fountain. I had some serious lightning node troubles, so there is a temporary solution in place. It's not ideal, but your Bitcoin dad is going to learn from this public failure and build back better. Oh my goodness. I hope you build back better than we're seeing right now. I know you will, though. It happens. It always happens when you're traveling, too. Yeah, I tied myself to a failing policy when I said that. Gosh. Um, <laughs> And we do have a correction this week. I think I mischaracterized Sam Bankman Fed's, Bankman Freed's, SBF's attempted acquisition of BlockFi because I was kind of saying, oh, you know, SBF, you want to be the central bank of crypto. But that's kind of the wrong analogy. When a central bank does a bailout, they're socializing the losses. When FTX acquires a struggling company, this is a private transaction. This is kind of like the free market at work. The flip side to that is, that the free market centralizes. It really can centralize in a predatory way left to itself. And this happened in 1907 in a stock market panic in the United States. And JP Morgan stepped in, the JP Morgan, who was a person before a company, stepped in and basically stopped the crisis by buying all of these companies that were temporarily insolvent because of liquidity issues and made a killing. And there was actually public outcry against this buyout by JP Morgan, even though it did, you know, it was totally legal, solve the problem, whatever. But afterwards, JP Morgan just was so rich, it seemed unfair to people. And so actually that event in some ways contributed to the creation of the Federal Reserve. The idea was that a public institution, of course, the Fed's not really public, but a more public institution to, should do that, not JP Morgan. I think I kind of got it a little bit wrong. I'm not saying that I think SBF and FTX are great. I think they kind of have a crappy business model there that probably is not very good for their customers. But I think I had the wrong call, the wrong framing of that situation. I'm not thrilled about essentially failed crypto organization bailouts, but 
I do think this is probably best for BlockFi customers because I don't think FTX is going to give them a haircut. I think they're probably going to be made whole. And it's probably best case scenario. And it, you know, if this if this gives Sam Bankman Fed more power down the road, so be it. I don't I don't really invasion BlockFi being some huge power player in the industry. So I don't think it's really going to move the needle much. But it is probably best for the BlockFi customers. If they can get out with their capital, that's good on them. Well, that's it for me. You uh, have any thoughts? No, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who is sending in the boost and the feedback. I think that it's one of my favorite parts of the show every single week. I think they provoke good conversation. I've been trying out Fountain FM's new stream sats while you play, which is kind of neat. They're working on it right now. It's a little wonky. I don't know how sustainable it is, but they're doing now paid promotion clips. They'll have like one or two clips a week that are promoted clips. And uh, they're using the sat revenue from that to stream sats to people listening to podcasts. And the JB shows have gotten a couple of boosts from folks that just collected sats listening to podcasts now with Fountain. So maybe there's something there. Um, But I'm also really loving Podverse these days, another podcasting 2.0 compatible app. And Podverse is working on making their player embeddable on any website. So a podcasting 2.0 embeddable player, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm really excited to try Podverse when I have an opportunity. Well, thank you for listening to the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, July 1st. 2022. I've been your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here as always virtually with with me, Chris from Seattle. See you next time. Do, 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 do. Now, how are we going to eat our sandwiches if we're remote? Where's my sandwich? Dang oh. it! Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Satoshi invented something. I'm pushing a sandwich into the microphone. Is it coming out on your end? <laughs> oh no, it came out of my microphone because I'm recording locally. <laughs> it's a Michael Saylor uh, quote. I can hear it now. Uh, Bitcoin is the digital manifestation of sandwiches, right? You put a sandwich in on one end and you get Bitcoin on the other end. And then you take that Bitcoin and you buy yourself a sandwich. So you can actually you can actually transport sandwiches via the Lightning Network because you just send somebody the money to buy a sandwich. It's beautiful.